This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast, and I'm super excited to be speaking today with Michael Fine, who recently launched advisor and proxy solicitor campaign management based in New York. Michael specializes in corporate governance, M&A, shareholder activism, executive compensation, SPACs, and a variety of other areas, and previously ran the U.S. business of Kingsdale, which is a noted Canadian proxy solicitor. And before that, he was a seed investor and senior managing director at rival proxy solicitor Okapi Partners, where he worked for more than three years. And before that, he was an equity derivatives trader. And at one point, he formed an asset management firm with over $300 million invested in both equity and debt strategies. And he began his career as director of marketing at Prudential Asset Management, where he communicated with the firm's institutional investors. Wow. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ron. Glad to be here. I'm a regular listener of your podcast, so happy to participate. (laughs) I really appreciate that. Okay, so you have a pretty varied background. I thought maybe we could start with, tell us a little bit about your new proxy solicitor firm, Campaign Management. Wondering if you work on director contests, controversial sand pay votes. Uh, Maybe just tell us a little bit about what kind of uh, situations you're working on. Absolutely. So launched Campaign Management earlier this year with the goal of establishing the leading proxy solicitation and shareholder advisory firm with a reputation for driving positive outcomes in challenging shareholder elections. We're sector agnostic. We're also market cap agnostic. So working with small companies, larger companies, we've worked on a variety of mandates on behalf of both companies and shareholders. Mm -hmm. And while we help ensure that routine annual meetings run smoothly and cost-effectively. I think we're best known for our work and really trying to carve out our niche in the more challenging campaigns, such as shareholder activism and contested m and I spent the majority of my career, as you pointed out during the intro, on the buy side, and I believe that's an important differentiator. I always say that proxy solicitors are the campaign managers of corporate elections, And in fact, I named our firm campaign management. So, you know, having worn the portfolio manager hat and actually pulled the voting lever provides a unique perspective and insight into effective shareholder engagement and voting. I've also developed a reputation for going the extra mile for clients. In fact, in a recent campaign, actually went an extra 12 miles, according to Waze, uh, while working on a, a challenging merger vote, I noticed that a large unvoted retail shareholder on the Nobo list lived a couple of towns away. And so I actually drove over to track him down when he was unresponsive to more traditional outreach. So this was a large position, not responding to email, mail, telephonic outreach. And look, in close votes, you need to be resourceful. You need to think outside the box and always make that extra effort. So I'm glad to say our launch has been extremely well received. I'm excited by a number of market dynamics that I think bode well for our continued growth. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And so maybe some advice to other proxy listeners. You have to sometimes physically go out and knock on doors. Uh, okay, so let's Whatever talk a little about Whatever it takes. Let's talk a little bit about corporate governance, uh, which is a subject that is uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, covering activism here at The Deal. 
And, you know, we often see activists launch contests at companies, you know, that fit their share price improvement thesis. They want some deals. They want their mergers. They want cost cuts, operation improvements. But those companies also exhibit directors that might be viewed poorly by the broader institutional investor base. So, Michael, I thought maybe you could talk a little about uh, what are some of the characteristics of directors that shareholders might view as problematic? Well, great question. And look, I'll start off by suggesting that, as in anything, there's a common sense element to what we do. I could get into the weeds on you know some of the sophisticated screening techniques used by activists in first identifying targets and then identifying uh, the weak links on the boards that they might go after. And look, of course, there are some common vulnerabilities that activists may look to exploit when targeting directors, just to rattle off a few tenure, independence, diversity, appropriate skills and experience, conflicts of interests, uh, concerns over capacity, like overboarding, right. board interlock, age, and obviously, importantly, the track record of other companies that they've served on the boards of. But I think ultimately for activists to be successful and have their case for change resonate with investors, as well as resonate with the proxy advisory firms, they need to make a a clear connection with how these attributes lead to long-term shareholder value creation and why their nominees are superior in that regard. So, you know, the advent of the universal proxy card highlights this critical consideration, since it's now a lot easier for investors to mix and match among the companies and dissidents nominees. A lot of attention has been focused on the the skills matrix we've all heard of, where companies list the various uh, skills that each director brings to the table in their proxy material. And of course, you know, we've never encountered a director who doesn't think that they check every box. But seriously, I believe the the matrix is an important tool to demonstrate a complementary set of skills with ideally limited overlap and no gaping holes. And, you know, tenure we talked about, it's difficult to look at things in a vacuum. It's conceivable that a long tenured board member is an exceptional director. Mm -hmm. That said, a board comprised of directors with extremely long tenures or a high average tenure certainly can invite scrutiny of independence. So Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, it's important not to to merely check the box on all the various skills in the matrix, but really tie in and demonstrate how a director's various skills and experiences work in that complementary way with the rest of the board. You know, you talk about importance of outside independent directors. And I think it's pretty clear that independence helps combat groupthink and avoids potential conflicts between the board and management. Mm -hmm. And another one is clearly industry expertise. I think it's pretty evident that such background is key in helping establish strategic direction, evaluate potential M&A opportunities, and understanding unique challenges of the business. I always think of and frequently cite as an example, Destination Maternity, which I'm sure you recall, became the target of a proxy fight years ago. And it turns out their board at the time didn't have a single female director. And it's a a maternity clothing company, if I remember correctly. Exactly. Setting aside the importance of gender and ethnic diversity on boards, not having a woman in 
the destination maternity board is astonishing given the company's right. line of business. And so, I, you know, the, the other thing just on this topic, I'd say, in, you know, looking forward on the, the future with cybersecurity and AI, these are both very real, legitimate concerns. In my view, companies need to determine how relevant they are to their particular businesses and have a solid understanding of their exposure. And then depending on that analysis, they can strike a balance of whether or not it's a specific skill requiring dedicated expertise on the board, or mm-hmm. if there are other ways that they can communicate to shareholders that you know the risks associated with these items are adequately appreciated and, and addressed and there's adequate oversight and look, as with anything, disclosure and communication with shareholders are key. So right. it, it all boils down to knowing your shareholder base, understanding how investors view these various items, what their specific voting guidelines are, what the potential influence of ISS and Glass-Lewis are, so that you can factor that into your corporate governance framework. You know, My yeah. philosophy is to always advise clients on best practices. Fully recognizing, however, that not all companies want to adopt best practices. But on the other hand, no one wants to be the poster child of poor governance either. So if you have significant vulnerabilities that can draw the attention of activists or the scrutiny of proxy advisors, you need to be aware of it. You also need to understand the the landscape and know what your proxy peers look like to ensure that you're generally in line with market and not an outlier. There's a situation I wrote about where a company put a seal of a SPAC on its board and that person sat on two other boards and ISS doesn't look too favorably at CEOs who serve on boards of more than two other companies. And it doesn't matter to ISS whether the CEO is of a SPAC or of an operating company. So that person is considered overboarded, it seems. Yeah, and look, I, I really think to a degree, rightfully so, and it boils down to what I mentioned earlier in terms of sort of the the common sense element of if you're a shareholder in a company and you know the director is overboarded clearly on multiple, multiple boards, can that individual really devote the required attention? to the company that you're invested in. And yes, I understand that, you know, is a SPAC technically an operating business or are they essentially searching for their target? But, you know, again, you could argue that that aspect itself requires a certain amount of time and dedication. So it's an interesting issue. Okay, so I have another feature I'm working on. Uh, in a, there's a situation where an activist... Uh, actually was supportive of the company. They, they succeeded at getting a couple of directors on the board, but the company is expanding the size of the board by two, I think from five to seven. And the activist is okay with that, which I was surprised because, you know, activists often don't like to see their, their new directors that they get on the board being um, kind of, uh, you know, lose their influence by a larger a board that grows. Um, but they said, oh, you know, this company has a large market cap and needs a bigger board. So I guess, I was uh, Michael, maybe you could just give us, give us some thoughts on, you know, how big a board should be when compared to their market cap? Because I feel like sometimes there's a disconnect. Yeah, you know, look, it's really case specific and the complexity of the business and the variety of sort of skills and experiences that are, are required to, you know, really provide, I think, the greatest strategic direction. That said, I think clearly 
for some of the smaller companies down to kind of that micro cap level, you can clearly make the argument that some may have boards that are too large because there's associated expenses associated with having more directors. So uh, look, again, going back to that that common denominator I mentioned earlier of, of the common sense element, do you look at it? Does it seem to make sense? You can sort of explain it with a straight face and justify the rationale for for the appropriate board size. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I look at the board size. And I'm like, that's just way too big a board. I mean, sometimes the market caps have crashed down a lot, and you know the company needed a board that big when they were much bigger. For example, and now you know. Yeah, I agree. But also, you know, you mentioned an example where you know an activist was was fine with expanding the board. There's a lot of activist calculus, I'd say, that goes into that analysis of. You know, making sure, of course, that if you have nominated directors who are on the board, will their influence necessarily be diluted? And, you know, what you look at in in part of that calculus is, well, who are the who are the new nominees? What committees are they going to be on? Mm -hmm. Things of that nature that may factor into your thinking. Okay, so I want to talk a little about ESG. And uh, I know that uh, you worked at, uh, on uh, advised McDonald's when it faced Carl Icahn's ESG proxy contest, seeking to install two directors on the chain's board in a campaign focused on how pigs are treated in the fast food company's supply chain. So Icahn, interestingly, took a, a minuscule stake, 200 shares, and said he wasn't focused on personal profit. And he lost overwhelmingly after McDonald's installed three new directors. So I guess, you know, tell us what you think, uh, what message that uh, contest told us about a single issue ESG battles, because that was very clearly kind of an ESG battle uh, waged by a traditional, you know, the icon of uh, activist campaigns. Uh, And um, I don't know how important was it that they refreshed their board? Uh, Did it it send a message that uh, to other other uh, investors that wanted to do single issues ESG campaigns that maybe it's not viable. If Carl Icahn can't do it, then how can they? Yeah, I look, that was certainly an interesting one. I think Icahn's proxy contest at McDonald's was flawed from the start. It was based on the premise that McDonald's hadn't fully delivered on a decade-old pledge to improve the treatment of pregnant pigs in the pork supply chain, mm-hmm. where in reality, McDonald's disclosed that despite the unprecedented global, massive global interruption caused by COVID, as well as challenges related to swine flu, it was actually close. McDonald's was close to delivering on its commitment and was scheduled to meet its objectives relatively soon. So this was a far cry from abject failure on McDonald's part. It's not like McDonald's was simply providing lip service and hadn't lifted a finger and was asking for an additional 10 years. But more importantly, and again, a theme of what we've been discussing, Carl failed to credibly tie in how the improved treatment of pregnant sows in the pork supply chain would ultimately create value for McDonald's shareholders and how his nominees were better equipped to help McDonald's deliver on that goal. And I believe at the end of the day, 
that strongly contributed to Icon's defeat. And, you know, certainly cynics might question Carl's genuine concern over animal welfare. His efforts at McDonald's were certainly viewed as, you know, somewhat hypocritical since he's had other investments where this didn't appear to be such an issue for him. And in contrast, you look at a campaign like the one engine number one ran at Exxon Mm -hmm. and they were successful. Mm-hmm. In large part because they convincingly made that connection between how having a sound, clean energy strategy and directors with expertise in that area were critical to Exxon's long-term success. I was, I think, pretty evident that Exxon was defining its business too narrowly as an gas company as opposed to an energy company. And you look no further than a monopoly board. Back when that game was created, the big industry back then, of course, was railroads. So you see, you know, B&O, Reading, Pennsylvania Railroad, et cetera, predominantly featured. Yet many of the top railroads back in the day failed to capitalize on the true enormous opportunity because they defined their business too narrowly as being in the train or railroad business, as opposed to being in the transportation business. So they missed the boat on, you know, other forms of transportation, such as automobiles and airplanes. So I think the same concept applied at uh, Exxon and engine number one was able to you know, make that case effectively in a way that that resonated with shareholders. And so I think that the message really is threefold. One, tie in the initiative with, with shareholder value. Mm-hmm. You also need to be credible and demonstrate a, a genuine concern. And then lastly, nominate experienced candidates with a proven track record to drive that change. It's interesting. I heard that engine number one had hired multiple director executive search firms to find their candidates, one of which was the former CEO of Anadarko Petroleum, and they had two ESG-friendly candidates that they got on the board as well. So I'm wondering, did engine number one have better candidates than Carl Icahn had at McDonald's? The key at Exxon, in my view, was... Look, identifying that there is a very compelling and direct connection between their thesis mm-hmm. and creating value. Whereas I think Icon at the end of the day failed to really convincingly make the point to shareholders that had McDonald's completed their pledge within the 10 years even though they were close to it with you know major market disruptions. But if they had somehow completed it, McDonald's would have been better positioned to create long-term value for shareholders. Or that if Icon's nominees had been elected, that it would have had a material change in sort of advancing that thesis. So that, that's what I think the real distinction is. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, is there any kind of broader messages that we can take from that contest? About You talked earlier about universal proxy cards. You know, they were supposed to be open up the floodgates. Uh, people have been particularly legal advisors to companies. They're hoping to get, uh, uh, have um, hire them to help them, hire them for their uh, their advice. It's supposed to open the, open up the floodgates to director contests from some smaller, more, you know, single issue 
type funds because it's supposedly inexpensive to submit director candidates. It's it's easier to meet the regulatory thresholds for solicitation. So small investors would launch directors. And so this was supposed to happen, but this year it didn't happen. And so I'm just wondering if like, you know, Carl Icahn's inability to win at this contest might have uh, contributed to why we haven't seen other ESG director contests, or do you think we could still could see ESG contests in the years to come? Look, anything's possible. Uh, I realize a lot of people are saying that, you know, the introduction of the universal proxy card didn't have the massive impact that many had expected, but I beg to differ. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, while we may not have seen a spike in all out guns and blazing proxy contests, there clearly was an enormous degree of, of self-remedies adopted by companies that recognized that they had vulnerabilities. They took proactive measures to address them, either in anticipation of potential activism or in response to you know, initial approaches by activists. And I think it's really difficult to look at the data and draw conclusions because so much is done behind the scenes and may get resolved before it ever becomes public. So instead, what I go by is what I see with clients and conversations that I have with other advisors. And Ron, I know you've talked to a lot of folks in the space. We have seen a huge amount of settlement activity and a lot of companies implement board refreshment and governance enhancements. And I expect that that will continue. I've always been uh, a big proponent of the universal card as I genuinely think that the ability of shareholders to mix and match their vote leads to the best outcome for companies and their shareholders. Mm -hmm. But let's face it, at the end of the day, activism, in my mind, is Darwinian. It really is an evolutionary kind of survival of the fittest. And targets are typically targets for a reason. Just because we may observe fewer fights doesn't mean that there's less activism. I think it's you know more reflective of prudent boards acknowledging the very real threat of activism and proactively taking measures to avoid it. Like bringing in uh, new directors when the activist has started to agitate, right? Like a defensive measure of bringing in. Absolutely. Or even before they're starting to agitate, doing that sort of self-assessment, recognizing that there may be some holes or other areas that they could be exposure and addressing them proactively. I'd also credit the ubiquity of activism. Look, as shareholder activism has become more mainstream, so has the sophistication and the, the quality of activists. I mean, you know, time was when an activist is an activist is an activist. They were all primarily the same thing. Short-term investors looking to create a pop in value that they could quickly capture, you know, and move on to the next name in their portfolio. And, you know, their director slates were historically reflective of that approach. But, you know, now being on a dissident slate, which at one time, as you know, was considered taboo, mm -hmm. is generally accepted. And with the improvement of dissident nominee quality, along with the universal proxy card, where shareholders can truly pick and choose each individual director, I believe that the caliber of company nominees has also commensurately improved. And while I'm not sure that Icon's defeated McDonald's was a major deterrent to ESG or especially the ENS related campaigns, mm -hmm. instead, I think when proponents roll up their sleeves, they may realize they have more of an uphill battle making that 
value connection that we've discussed that, you know, engine number one clearly was able to, mm-hmm. but Icon wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I also think we're starting to see the, the pendulum swing back a bit on ESG, you know, with Larry Flink of BlackRock saying they're no longer going to even use the term ESG. And, mm-hmm. you know, look, as we've seen in the polls, I think shareholders are less than fully convinced of that connection, stating the obvious, I guess. But, you know, companies with good G governance mm-hmm. generally should have good E and S as well, since oversight of these issues should be in, in good shape at companies with appropriate governance in place. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm really curious to see what the NPX, the, uh, you know, the uh, mutual fund voting disclosures will be, which they come out, I guess, August 31st, and people start crunching them after that for this year's proxy season, because you know, the ENS proposals, there were more of them, but they got less support. And I'm curious if it's like a few large players, BlackRock, Seichi, Vanguard, that contributed to the significant drop, or if it's kind of a broader trend and lots of different kinds of investors. Look, it'll be interesting to see. And as we know, uh, a number of the larger passive investors are starting to delegate voting authority, you know, down to their clients. So uh, it'll be interesting when that data comes out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, the uh, and so people are starting to use that. Okay, we are out of time. This has been Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investment Today podcast. And we've been speaking with Michael Fine, founder and CEO of Campaign Management. Thanks, Michael, for taking the time. Thank you, Ron. Take care. <laughs>